we're going to continue our Psalms of Ascent preaching series that we've been going through over the last few weeks. And so we're going to invite Dan Hayter and uh, hear what he's got to say to us this morning. Well, hi there. We're in a teaching series at the moment on the Psalms of Ascent, which is a group of psalms in the book of Psalms, which would have been sung by Israelites who were traveling to Jerusalem, to the temple in order to worship. And um, this week is the last week in that series. We're starting a series on Ephesians next week as we launch into September, but it's the last week in the Psalms of Ascent. And we're going to be in Psalm 130. So why don't we grab our Bibles and let's read Psalm 130 together. Let's read the word of God. So Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. I will wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of God. Where do you go when you've messed up? Where do you go when you have sinned? What, what or who do you turn to when you know that you've blown it, that you've failed your own standards, let alone God's? What do you turn to? Where do you go? And maybe that's the situation that you are currently in right now. Maybe you're here and you're aware of things that you've done over this last week that, to be frank, you're ashamed of. It may be the things that you have said to people or things that you have done behind closed doors that you think, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I didn't live up to the standard that I felt I could. I know that for myself, I'm aware over the last couple of weeks that um, I've, there are areas in which I've neglected my relationship with God. That There's a, a sense in which God has, can, has kind of been put on the shelf in many ways. That there's also ways in which I've lacked patience with my kids and with my wife and just aware of sin, aware of weakness. Maybe you're here today and that's your situation. Maybe you're here today and you're not currently a follower of Jesus and you're thinking, I'm so aware of my failings. I'm so aware of where I don't meet what I know must be God's standards. How on earth could I come to know him? How on earth could I come to, into a relationship with him? And the amazing thing is the psalm that we've read is a wonderful psalm when we find ourselves in moments where we're aware of our sin and aware of our failings, because this psalm helps us to remember the good news, the gospel of Jesus, in moments where we are despairing because of our own sin and our own failings. So let's look at that together. Let's use this psalm to encourage us in those moments of difficulty. Because the person who wrote this psalm, as you may have noticed when we read it, is not in a good place. Let's reread the first two verses. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. This is a desperate man. Out of the depths I cry to you. This almost the image of someone who's stuck down the bottom of a hole, helpless, unable to do anything. This, the person who wrote this psalm is aware, oh, I am desperate, I need something. It's like I'm stuck at the bottom of a big hole. And the question is why? Why is he in this desperate situation? And on the one hand, 
This psalm is a really helpful psalm for any moment of difficulty that we go through in life, whatever that is, whether that's financial difficulties, marital difficulties, relational difficulties, or other kinds of difficulties. It's a helpful principles in this psalm. But actually, when we read the psalm carefully, we realize that there's a quite a specific reason that the person who wrote this psalm is in despair, and that reason is because he is aware that he has sinned. He's aware that he has failed God's standards. Look, for example, he, he asks God for mercy. He's aware. He needs mercy. He needs God to give him things that he doesn't deserve. He talks about forgiveness in verse 4. He mentions uh, towards the end of the psalm that God will redeem or set free Israel from their iniquities. So this is someone who is aware, I have sinned, I have done wrong against God. And perhaps we don't know for sure what's going on, but perhaps he's reaping the consequences of what he's done. It may be that there, are, there is a particular sin or a particular thing that he's done and he's reaping the consequences of that. It may be that there's a relational breakdown that's happened or he may just be suffering as a direct result of some of the stuff that he has done. Or maybe he's just particularly aware of having failed God, that he's aware how far he has failed. But here's what's really important. What does he do in that moment? What does he do when he realises that he's blown it and that he's sinned? And the answer is he turns to God, which I think is an amazing response. Because if, if you're anything like me, my temptation when I've blown it, when I know that I've failed, that I've sinned, that I've done wrong against God, my temptation is to turn to anything else in that moment. I know in moments in the past, particularly where I'm aware of watching things that I shouldn't have watched, being exposed to things that I shouldn't have been exposed to. There's a sense of shame that can settle in. And the last thing I want to do in that moment is turn to God, because I think, well, I'm, I've sinned against him. Why would I want to go to him? I'm just, I'll let the dust settle a little bit. I'll just give myself a few days of feeling sorry for myself, feeling bad for what I've done, and maybe after that, I can come to God. But actually, in moments like that, it's important to remember that the best place that we can go is actually to go to God. And this is what the psalm writer does. He cries out to God. He's aware of his sin, but in his awareness of sin, he cries out to God. He asks God to listen to him. He asks him to have mercy. Did you notice that in the first two verses that we read? He doesn't stay quiet and wait for the moment to pass. He doesn't say, you know what, I won't bother God because I've failed him anyway, so I'm not going to bother him. Instead, he goes to him. And my encouragement to you, my encouragement to me, is in those moments where you're aware that you've failed, can I encourage you, don't run away from God. In those moments where you sense shame or discouragement or guilt because of what you've done, don't run away from God. Run to God. And that's one of the things that we see this psalm writer doing. But why? Why does the person who wrote this psalm and why should we turn to God in moments where we're desperately aware of how much we've sinned? Why is God the best person to turn to? Because as I said earlier, very often when we have failed catastrophically, the last person we feel we should go to is God because surely he's the one that we've offended the most. So why do we turn to God? Why is it best that we turn to God in those moments? Well, let me start by telling you one wrong reason. One wrong reason why the psalm writer turns to God. And it's not because he's aware that he's not actually that bad. He doesn't turn to God because he thinks, you know, at the end of the day, what I did wasn't that bad. So it's fine for me to just go to God. In fact, look at verse three. Look at what he says, verse three. 
He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? In other words, he's saying, I am aware that if God treated me as I actually deserve to be treated, I wouldn't be alive. If God treated us the way that we deserve to be treated, we'd have absolutely no hope. So he doesn't turn to God in that moment because he thinks, you know what, it's not that bad what I've done. And neither should we. We shouldn't turn to God thinking, you know what, what I've done isn't actually that bad. So I'm just going to go to God because it's not really that bad. That's not the reason we turn to God. It's not because of us. The reason he turns to God is because of, because of what God is like. Listen to this, verse four. With you, there is forgiveness. He realises, I am so aware of how sinful I am, and how terribly I've failed, but I remember what God is like, and I know that with him, there is forgiveness. And what an encouraging thing to remember about God when you're on your way to the temple. The temple, the place which symbolises forgiveness, symbolises this place where human beings and God can be reconciled when an animal is sacrificed. He says in in verse 7, with the Lord there is steadfast love. With him is plentiful redemption. He turns to God, in other words, not because he thinks what I've done isn't that bad. No, in fact, he turns to God saying, I am aware of that what I've done is awful, but I know what you're like. I know that you forgive. I know that you give steadfast love. I know that you give plentiful redemption. This isn't a picture of a stingy God who just stands there going, Go on, twist my arm, twist my arm. See if, see if I forgive you, see if I forgive you. This is a God who wants to forgive his people. This is a God who wants to bless and love his people. This is the God that we read about in Psalm 103 verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. That's the God that this Psalm writer reminds himself of. And that's the God that we come to. We don't come to him when we fail because we weren't actually that bad. We come to him because he forgives, because he is merciful, because he gives us what we don't deserve. That's what God does because of Jesus for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Listen to this in 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Notice it doesn't say, if we confess our sins, he is begrudging and perhaps he will forgive our sins. No, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. This is a picture of a God that when we come to him when we failed, says, I am willing to forgive you. It reflects the amazing truth. Some of you might know the song that Matt Redman wrote, You Alone Can Rescue. There's a line in that song which sums it up perfectly. It says this, Our shame was deeper than the sea. Your grace is deeper still. As far down as we could possibly be in sin and iniquity, however bad the worst thing you have ever done is, God's grace, God's love, God's forgiveness is even deeper. And this psalm writer is so aware of how much he's failed, but he's even more aware of how awesome God is. And that's why he turns to, to God when he messes up. So can I encourage you? 
When you're discouraged by your own weakness, by your own sin, and we will be many, many times in our lives, and for some of you it may be particularly right now that you are aware of an area of sin or of failing in your life, can I encourage you, remind yourself of what God is like. Take the truth that we read in this psalm, and in moments where you think, can I, can I actually come to God? Can I approach him? Or should I just stay in my own space for a little while whilst, whilst things brush over, and then maybe I'll come back to God? When you're tempted in those moments to do that, Remind yourself, with God there is forgiveness. With him there is steadfast love. With him there is plentiful redemption. Remind yourself, you can come to him. However bad what you have done is, you can come to him and receive forgiveness as you come to him. And because of that, even though the psalm writer is currently in a really bad place, he says this in verses five to six. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. So even though he's still in distress, maybe he's still reaping the consequences of what he's done, whatever it is, even though he's still in distress, because he knows what God is like, he waits for God to set him free from the distress that he's in. The Bible often talks about this idea of waiting for the Lord, and it's important to understand what it means, because there's a wrong way of thinking about waiting for the Lord and a right way of thinking about waiting for the Lord. And I'm going to use two objects to illustrate this. A wrong way of waiting for the Lord is, I've got a taxi here, but maybe a bus might actually be a little better. A wrong way of waiting for the Lord is the idea of waiting for a taxi or waiting for a bus. You're sat at the bus stop or the taxi stop, and you're sat there thinking, when's it going to come? Is it, gonna, is it even going to come? I don't know. Maybe the bus will be cancelled. And you're just sat there passively waiting. That's not what it means to wait for the Lord. The way to wait for the Lord is what it talks about in uh, verse 6. It says, My soul waits for the Lord more than watchman for the morning. More than watchman for the morning. Now, when a watchman watches, they're on the wall of the city during the night looking out to see if there are any enemy armies that are trying to attack by night. In other words, the object you could use is a little bit more like a telescope. You've got a watchman on the wall, they are actively looking out. They are making sure that there's nothing on the horizon and they know that the morning is gonna come. Because when the morning comes, they'll be able to see more clearly. It's much less dangerous. They're waiting for the morning. They know the morning is gonna come. And whilst they're waiting, they're looking. They're waiting, they're looking. And that's a, a picture in the Bible of what it means to wait for the Lord. What it means to wait for the Lord is the idea of praying with absolute assurance, absolute confidence that God is going to do the things that he's promised to do. It's like the telescope rather than sitting waiting for a bus that may or may not turn up. And because we know that God is faithful, when we come to him, when we wait for him, the question isn't, will God do what he's promised? The question is, when will God do it? And that's one of the reasons we pray. It's because we know God has made promises. And when we pray, we're like those watchmen on the walls who are looking out, saying, we know God's going to answer. The question is, when is he going to answer? And that's why we do things like the week of prayer and fasting. Can I encourage you? Why not find a way of committing to that week in some way so that we can together wait for the Lord? I find this hard in moments of difficulty, like this psalm writer, to wait for the Lord, because my temptation is actually just to be like waiting for the taxi, to just sit there, do nothing, not really engage with God in any way. 
But actually in those moments where we feel difficulty or pain, and in this psalm it's the pain of knowing your sin, but it could apply to any kind of pain, the challenge and the encouragement for us is, are we going to wait for the Lord like the watchman who looks out, who prays, who seeks after God and who knows that God is going to act? But at a bigger level, one of the things that we are waiting for as Christians, like these watchmen on the wall, is what this psalm calls plentiful redemption in verse 7. We're waiting for a moment when Jesus returns and we experience everlasting life, where we don't just experience forgiveness of sins, as amazing as that is, but we experience a moment where God sets us free from the very presence of sin. And that is an amazing encouragement for when we fail. And that's what kept this psalm writer going. He was so aware of his failings, but he was also aware that God would forgive and that God had promised what we call redemption, which is freeing his people from all of the consequences of their sins. And we are waiting for a day when Jesus returns and having already forgiven us, he sets us free completely from the very presence of sin. There's a day coming where I will not want to do things that are displeasing to God. There's a day coming where you will not struggle with the things that you wish you didn't struggle with and that you are sometimes ashamed of doing. And that's an encouragement. So let's be a church that learns what it is to wait for God. Not like those who wait for the bus, passively sitting there, twiddling their thumbs, thinking, is it going to happen? Is it not? But waiting for the sunrise. We know it's coming. We know Jesus is coming back. We know God is going to be faithful to his promises. Let's pray and let's engage and let's talk to God and listen to him as we wait. And we wait for God because of what he is like. We know that God is faithful. We know that what God promises, he will do. And because of that, we can trust that as we wait for God, he will end up doing what he's done, what he's promised, sorry. But I'd like to finish with a question, which is, how do we know that this is actually what God is like? So this psalm writer here is confident, trusts in God, that God's going to forgive him and that God is going to free him from all of his problems because he knows that God is faithful, because he knows what God is like. But is there any evidence of that? Is there any evidence of the fact that this is what God is like? Or is this just wishful thinking? Because you could imagine, silly illustration, but you could imagine someone going on and on and on about how their friend is the best musician in the world. Say, oh, they are the best musician. They just, the way they play jazz is incredible. The way they improvise and all of the different notes they play and the rhythm they play, amazing, best musician in the world. And you might hear that over and over again. And after a while you start thinking, yeah, but I haven't heard him play. What evidence do I have to actually trust that this guy is the best musician in the world? When we fail catastrophically, when we sin, when we do things that we are ashamed of, what evidence do we have that God is actually the kind of God who wants to forgive? That God is actually the kind of God who wants to welcome us back? That God is actually the kind of God who wants us to run to him and not to other things? And the answer is that there is evidence. There is an evidence because there is an actual moment in history when God demonstrated that this is what he is like. And that is when G Jesus died on the cross. The cross shows us just how far God will go in order to forgive us. The 
cross shows us just how far God will go to forgive us. Because God is merciful, but God is also just. God can't just brush our wrongdoing under the carpet. He can't just say, oh, it doesn't matter. That's not what God forgiving means. There needs to be punishment for sin. There needs to be punishment for what has been done wrong. But the amazing news of Jesus and of the cross when Jesus died is that Jesus took the punishment that we deserved. So that when we trust Jesus, we can be forgiven because Jesus was judged and punished instead of us. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's where we look. When we think, is God actually a God who wants to forgive? We look to the cross. When we think, is God actually a God who wants to do what he's promised? Is, is he actually a God who is faithful? We look to the cross and we say, if that's how far God is willing to go to forgive us, of course he is going to be faithful. Of course he's going to be trustworthy. Of course he is going to do what he's promised to do. When we look at the cross, we can say, as with the psalmist, that there is hope, that we can hope in God, that we can trust in him. And so if you're in the depths today, if you're in the depths like this psalm writer who's saying, out of the depths I cry to God, and maybe it's specifically because you're aware of particular areas that you've failed recently or particular areas of sin, can I encourage you, when you are in that moment, look to the cross. Remember the cross of Jesus. When you're thinking, I've blown it, I've done something that's too bad, God can't forgive me. Look at the cross. Look at what Jesus did. Look at how far God was willing to go so that we could be forgiven. And if you're here today and you perhaps don't know Jesus, perhaps you're not a follower of Jesus, can I encourage you? You can experience this forgiveness as you put your trust in Jesus, as you follow him as Lord, you can experience this forgiveness for yourself. You can experience what it looks like to be forgiven of all of the things that you have ever done that are wrong. And if that's you and you'd like to find out more about that, can I encourage you to find one of the leaders, one of the elders of the church after the service and ask them, how can I come to know Jesus? But why don't we pray and uh, celebrate what Jesus has done? Father, I thank you for this psalm. I thank you that it reminds us that with you there is forgiveness. I thank you that it reminds us of your character, of what you are like. And Father, I pray that you would help us today, especially those of us who are suffering with shame and guilt and awareness of our weakness, awareness of our failings. I pray you would remind us, as that amazing song says, our, our, our sin was deep, our shame was deeper than the sea your grace was deeper still, that we would remember that with the Lord, there is forgiveness. And Father, I pray that you would help us in moments where we fail to remember your goodness, your forgiveness, and to run to you. And that we would celebrate the amazing good news that you have forgiven us because of what Jesus has done. And there's a day coming where we will not even be tempted to sin. We want to rejoice and celebrate in that. And so we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.